As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times, and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today, it is Tom Roddy. And of course, both of you join us after a very hectic Sunday, the final Sunday of the 2019-2020 Premier League season. So, Tom, where were you? I was at Southampton, uh, seeing Ooh. seeing Danny Ings come within one of the golden boot. And <laughs> so Shea, Shea Adams... 30 games to, to, to score for Southampton and now he can't stop. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was sort of a summary of, of their season and they started really badly and, and ended strongly. Yeah, it was good fun. Just um, briefly, for Southampton fans that might be listening, how optimistic could they be and should they be for, for next season? I, I think I think big time. Um, I mean, I've, I've always admired um, Ralph Hasenhutl. I think he's a, he's a brilliant coach. I think the, the concern Concern is like most Premier League clubs who are who are at sort of outside the top six will be traditional top six will be this summer. It, it's what happens to to your squad. One of the things I've noticed listening to Hassan Hootel quite a, quite a lot, especially since the restart, is he's asked about individual players and doesn't particularly like talking about them. He's not as sort of effusive as you'd expect him to be, and I, I think he did. He did admit part of the reason is that he doesn't want to draw too much attention. I mean, you've got a, a striker like Danny Ings playing for Southampton, who's scored 23 goals this year. You've got Ryan Bertrand, who's who's been brilliant at left back. I mean, could have been if, if it wasn't for the the sort of um, the amount of talent England have got a left back. He he could be in that. He could be in contention for that as well. And and of course, Hoiberg's already going. So or looks like he's going. So I think they just don't want to see it stripped apart again. And Gregor, while well, Tom was on the south coast, I know you were covering a game, but it wasn't in the Premier League. Where were you? What were you doing? What did you make of it? I was at uh, Swansea Brentford. I was I was uh, seeing all the results in the Premier League come through on my phone beforehand, and uh, certainly looked like a thrilling one, particularly. Villa West Ham, my God. But then, yes, I was at Swansea Brentford, the first leg of the Championship playoff semi final, which was an eventful game, too. There was a very contentious red card, and uh, it was a, well, basically a crazy two minute spell in the midway through the second half when Swansea missed a penalty. And then mm. almost immediately afterwards, Brentford's uh, Rico Henry, the left back, was sent off for what looked like a perfectly good tackle and Keith Stroud was in the in the crosshairs after that and and uh, Thomas Frank had some interesting things to say as well so Ooh. yeah you know unless I'm talking preaching to the converted I'll tell you what if, you, <laughs> if people don't know Thomas Frank uh, and, and his character you only had to see him post-match he was fiery wasn't yeah. he oh my yeah there goodness. was there were some lines that you couldn't insert in a, in a respectable <laughs> newspaper yeah so <laughs> no. interesting second yeah. leg ahead though definitely yeah, one goal in its Swansea lead as they take that to Griffin Park on Wednesday night. Now, we've got loads coming up as the curtain closes on the longest ever Premier League campaign. 352 days of it, to be precise. We're going to break down the best of the final day action as Aston Villa avoided the drop and we'll pick our moments of the season. First, though, we're talking about the top four. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The champions Liverpool and Manchester City had already booked their places in next season's Champions League going into the final day of the Premier League season. So that left two places with three teams to battle it out. Manchester United, Chelsea and Leicester. United and Chelsea came out on top, finishing third and fourth. And that meant Brendan Rodgers' Leicester side were the ones to miss out after spending 312 consecutive days in the top four this season. A 2-0 win against Wolves sealed a fourth-place finish for Frank Lampard in his first season in charge, which is not bad for a rookie who had lost Eden Hazard before he'd picked a team. Manchester United, however, had been 14 points behind Leicester City in February, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer never lost faith. Last week, they jumped above Leicester before sealing the deal against the Foxes on the final day with another 2-0 win. So let's take a look back at Solskjaer's first full season and then, of course, Frank Lampard's first season at United and Chelsea, respectively. Tom, how would you assess both those managers' first season at the clubs where they became legends as players? First full season. The general feeling seems to be that Lampard has done a slightly better job than Solskjaer. And that's possibly down to uh, the, the context that was always going to come at Chelsea, regardless of where they finished at the end of the season. It's whenever you hear anyone talk about Chelsea these days, the three things come before it, which is talk of the kids coming through, the transfer ban, and, and of course, the, the loss of Eden Hazard. And I think... Um, even if it had gone catastrophically, I think Lampard might have been given a, a bit of slack. But mm. at the same time, that, that context goes towards elevating the, the achievement of, of getting forth. I mean, I think he's spoken a lot before this, this, this last game of the season when forth wasn't certain. He spoke about the fact we shouldn't, it, it feels a bit more like a trophy, but we shouldn't, Chelsea can't be a club that views it as a trophy. So I think what he's, what he's done there means it is it, it looked upon with a lot of respect. I think the thing with Solskjaer is he's done the same with the kids coming through. You know, Brandon Williams has done well. Of course, Mason Greenwood's been absolutely brilliant. It feels like there's a little bit more of a an inconsistency. Every time United seems to be picking up a head of steam, they seem to suddenly hit a roadblock. And I think that's what they, they need to lose a, li- a little bit. But I still think he's done a good job. Of, uh, I think they've, it's been a long time coming. It's been um, a mess. It was a messy job to take over in the first place, and, and it was always going to take quite a bit of building. What you can't forget is that Lampard did take over a team that won the Europa League last year as well. So he he had a good squad. 
Chelsea have already dipped into the transfer market this summer for the new season, signing Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner. There is also talk of Kai Havertz joining uh, as well. Gregor, do they need Havertz as well? And, and if they don't, where else should they be strengthening? Do they need Havertz? I mean, probably when you look at their squad, it's it's that's where they're, they're best stocked with these kind of players they're who are really... quite top heavy, aren't they? Yeah, talented players kind of that play between the lines or... Or uh, or wingers, and but I think the thing with Havertz is the sort of the the feeling is he's a kind of a generational talent. Uh, mm. If they can't get him, then I think they should. Uh, but that does not detract from the fact that they need they need to strengthen defensive definitely. And obviously the goalkeeper situation, Kepa was was left out at the weekend, and I think it looks like Lampard will do his best to try and move him on. I'm not sure that'll be easy because he's earning a lot of money and he was. I think he was the most expensive goalkeeper. And they also need definitely at least one centre half and they need a left back. So I think all these things are known. I think what's been really interesting about about Lampard's season is that there's kind of there's been a group of people who've been really keen to to put him on a pedestal and say what an outstanding job he's done. And there's been another group of people who've been kind of quite keen to say, Well, hang on a minute, he's inherited a, a very good squad, a kind of it's a bit of an easy easy thing to hide behind that there was a transfer ban and he was bringing through some of the best kids in the country and I think there is kind of a middle ground I think he has done there's no doubt he deserves great credit for getting the getting the, the, the club into the Champions League and and also in the FA Cup final but at the same time there are still some as Tom alluded to there are some kind of issues with them Chelsea are very open sometimes and tactically mm. there have been a few missteps this season so uh, look he's, 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 he's new in management but it's been a, a very very encouraging start and and uh, and Chelsea look far better placed than they did this time last year. Is that your cat, Gregor? <laughs> I just have, she just wandered in. I just had to absolutely shoo her out there. <laughs> Sorry. But what about Manchester United then, Tom? The return from lockdown has shown that Ole has formed a, a strong starting eleven. Are they limited beyond that with their depth, or is there some exciting young talent? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that definitely fair to say that it's a, it's a strong 11 and and they they miss a bit of depth I mean you compare it to the other benches um, in the, the sort of traditional top six and, and it, it's definitely weaker Chelsea yesterday had Tammy Abraham, Ruben Loftus-Cheek Pedro and Callum Hudson-Odoi on the bench I think Tottenham considering Jose Mourinho was speaking of before the lockdown about the his lack of depth on the on the bench. He had Bergvine on the bench and Deli Alley. Um so I think it's certainly weaker. So I think they do they they do need to strengthen. Where I think would be probably one of the, the positions they've been they've been most strongest this year. I think maybe um or in the past years is, is the goalkeepers a big issue there as well as at Chelsea. Um Obviously, that can be re- resolved by Dean Henderson coming back. I also think Bruno Fernandes coming through has been a huge sort of solution to the problems that Ollie's had. But I think they haven't really solved the defensive side of midfield. I think Matic has been good in fits and starts this season. He turns 32 on Saturday and he's, he's been a brilliant player in 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 the Premier League and Scott McTominay shows he could become that player but they haven't got a player like a, a Wilford Ndidi or a, or a Kante who, who allows the other players to have more freedom 
I think they're they're well stocked in those those attacking positions like like Gregor was referring to with Kai Havertz. Like Chelsea, they've got a lot of players in attacking positions, but I don't think I think they lack a little bit of a kind of centre forward. I think it's just part of the, the the building process, and I think this will be a big summer for them. And of course. To get the Champions League was huge. There was even talk today of immediately um, discussions between Dortmund and United happening over Sancho. I don't think that's quite correct yet, but it just goes to show, you know, suddenly it shows how important getting the Champions League position was because it makes them such a, a, a hugely more attractive. Hmm. Obviously, Tom mentioned David De Gea there as, as an issue, perhaps for Manchester United. Gregor, you've mentioned Kepa as well at Chelsea. When both of these players, Gregor, or should I call you Blofeld with your cat? (laughs) Um, No. When both both of these keepers command such huge salaries, how difficult would it be to move them on when you consider the financial climate that football may well find itself for the next year or so? Well, this is the context for all of these discussions. You know, we... we we don't really know actually how how the transfer market is gonna is gonna kind of react this summer. It's quite condensed, and second of all, obviously there are there are huge pressures, financial pressures on clubs, even the biggest clubs. So part of that is going to be whether clubs are a willing to spend the money, but whether clubs are willing to accept bids for them that are, that are likely to be a lot lower than than the than their outlay. So. Yeah, I mean it's going to be very hard, and also it's going to be hard for these for these top Premier League clubs because they pay they pay better money than the majority of clubs in Europe. So um, it could be difficult for them. Yeah, but I think I think really that was a bit of a statement from from Frank Lampard yesterday. You know, mm. he's been left out before, but he was left out in a game that was deciding their their fate for, for the next season, whether they got in the Champions League or not. Um, it wasn't like a cup game or. Uh, you know, game in the middle of the season. This was a this was a, a crucial fixture for them, and they left out a goalkeeper who cost north of fifty million pounds. And Tom, you were mentioning there about the position of Manchester United and and whether they need to strengthen. There have been earlier this season question marks over Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager. It seems to be vindicated now when you consider where they've ended up. Do you think, therefore, he has? Well, it's being justified now that he will be able to spend money, that he will be given the resources because of the work that he's been able to to do with Manchester United and, and turn them around since the turn of the year. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, definitely sort of deserves to. I mean, there's been there's been question marks ever since he sort of came in, hasn't hasn't there? Um, yeah. And I think the, the the thing is, you could you could kind of play devil's advocate for a little bit. Um, for, kind of on the moment on this where this is a team who were, were struggling along throughout the season it's only been since restart that they've they've recorded three wins in in a row in the league and that's this is this is man united and i think what it kind of goes to show is how you you can't underestimate the influence that the signing of bruno fernandez has had mm-hmm. but he came in january and i believe that since he joined the form table has United at the top. I mean, it was just it's a it's a it was a landmark signing, and I think it's someone who United have been after for a while. And I don't think it's someone who, you know, just Oli Gunnar Solskjaer was 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 the man shouting from the top of Old Trafford for him. I think 
it's been one going that was going for a while. Uh, the other side of it is that it's part of this building process where maybe he was a crucial piece of the puzzle of what Solshire was pulling together there, that they are shifting and, it, and that just accelerated the process greatly. I mean, what they've done now is referring to earlier, the fact they're in the Champions League will mean that players of his calibre can be attracted um, so much more easily and playing with in a team with Bruno Fernandes, playing in the Champions League with Manchester United will be will be huge and attractive for any any player now. The only the only thing of course I think which is which is worth noting is that it's seven years now since United won the Premier League. And when you think of someone like say a, a, a Jaden Sancho and the, the connection there is there, he would have been thirteen, I think, at the time, the last time Man United won the league. So there's almost this this kind of movement in in generations. How you know we we we've been around a little bit, so we're we we still look at Man United as this huge club, and they are. But the players coming through and the prospects like Erling Haaland, who of course they're in for, it's how they view the club. Yeah, no, good point there, Tom. I think we should just have a a quick word on on Leicester, Gregor, because obviously. <laughs> It all seemed to be going quite well for them at one stage. And, and while it's credible that they have earned themselves a Europa League place, as many perhaps hadn't tipped them for the top four, there's going to be huge disappointment, isn't there, around the club at how they've actually let it slip away when you consider that at one stage there were 14 points clear of Manchester United in February. They've been in the top four since late August and only dropped out last week. So what had been an exciting possible 10 months has just ended in one huge anticlimax. Brendan Rodgers obviously tried to put a different spin on things afterwards. He was saying it was the second, the club's second uh, best Premier League finish, I think, and after obviously their, their title winning season. But it's hard to put a positive spin on a kind of a fall that, you know, two halves to the season almost that kind of contrasting. That was the fascinating thing actually about the whole the whole kind of weekend. It was, you know, this was a season where it was kind of, we began the season thinking, you know, Chelsea have got a rookie manager and a transfer ban. Manchester United have got Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager. Uh, Liverpool and City will, will run away with it. But this is a year of kind of the insurgent. A Wolves, a Sheffield United, a Leicester can can get crash the party here. And then <laughs> 352 days later and, and 38 <laughs> games later, it was close, but no, I'm afraid not. It's, but it was as you were. The four richest clubs in the country are the, the top four again. Um so it, there is that, you know. You have to say Leicester are still Leicester City, and they and they they don't have anything like the resources of those other clubs. But there's no doubt that um, after the the start, you know, the, we were talking about them as title contenders briefly. After the 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 first half of the season they had, it's, it's going to be a huge disappointment for them. Yeah, well, at one stage, as you right, you rightly say, they were pushing Liverpool, weren't they? But it seemed to all fall away. Now, like the battle for the remaining top four places, three teams began the day fighting for one remaining Premier League place. Just three points separated Aston Villa, Watford and Bournemouth heading into the final day. And it was Dean Smith's side that came out on top. It is Villa then that lived to fight another day in England's top flight, led by boyhood Villa fan Dean Smith. And fittingly, another boyhood Villa fan scored their goal in the one-all draw with West Ham on Sunday, which secured their stay in the Premier League. And of course, I'm talking about the captain, Jack Grealish. So, Tom, can Aston Villa fans hold any hope of keeping hold of their star man, Grealish? Uh, 
No. Um, <laughs> next question. Um, no, really? Sorry, I'm, no, so I'm, you... being, I'm, I'm being facetious. Um, but I, th- I, think, I think most, if, if they had gone down, I think most would have accepted that he was going to leave. But now that they are going to stick around for at least another season, you don't. there's no hope that he'll still be there? No, I think exactly. You're, you're exactly right. I think that is the slight chance, Nat, that means that he could end up sticking around because it also depends on who comes in for him now because, you know, Villa are still a Premier League club. They're his boyhood club. He's, he's, he's clearly got a strong connection with the team and, and especially with, with Dean Smith. So if they had gone down, there, there would have been that, that kind of desperation, I suspect, to still be a part of the Premier League. Now that that's still there at Villa Park, I think it would kind of need to be a, a really big club for him to go. And the difficulty there is the is, is who comes in for him. I mean, there's talk of Man United. Again, we've just been discussing about how how much kind of depth they have in, in similar positions. I could see him as a, a Spurs, in a Mourinho Spurs team, really, that kind of, uh, that individual talent that, that he has. But no, like I say, I was I was being facetious. So I, I there is a there is a small chance that he he could end up sticking around um, sticking around there. But he's just he's just such a an outstanding talent. I think the the issue is is whether teams like like a like I say a Liverpool and a City where they have a real model and an identity, whether they can get Grealish to fit in with that kind of assimilate him into that because at the moment he's that that talisman where it's these individual moments of brilliance that that save his team and and have him create this status that he has now where do you stand on it then gregor with jack grealish can you see him moving on to i don't know what are the top four clubs from this season I think part of it starts with uh, what we mentioned before about the kind of how much Villa would would expect for him and the kind of financial climate. So that might affect things. I'm also not entirely sure which top four club he gets in. He, he kind of walks into the yeah. starting eleven for us. So it's it's a lot of money to you know to lay out for for a bit of a kind of maverick, unique player who you're not entirely sure. As Tom says, he's not. He doesn't really fit into into the kind of uh, dynamic of a modern team. So I'm not entirely sure about that. You know, I think Spurs probably are the most likely, but you'd have you'd have a lot of defensive duties under in a Jose Mourinho team. It's a question mark about that. So no, I'm not, I really, certainly not Chelsea, not with the money they're throwing around at the moment and the talent they have available to them. Mm. Um, so I, no, I think it'd be difficult. So in that, in that sense, then I think there's a chance he will stay at Villa. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, when you, especially when you talk about the top four, I mean, you could... <laughs> You can't think of him fitting into Liverpool. You can't think of him at, at Manchester City. Chelsea, as you say, that they're, they're recruiting already and it doesn't seem that they need someone like Grealish. And it seems as though Manchester United would be the only club that he may go to. But again, it's a question of does he fit into to life at Old Trafford? So if we're talking about Aston Villa and Grealish, Tom, is it imperative they keep hold of him to ensure that they have a better next season? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we we've seen the impact he's had. I mean, I don't Villa don't stay up without him. Uh, there's no there's no chance that they get as in this season just gone. They they would not have stayed up without him. So for them, it, it is. I think that it does feel like there's possibly a bit of an exception that he might go there or he would go if the right offer came in. I mean, you only need to listen to 
to Dean Smith talking this morning about the celebrations last night and joking about writing his new contract in, in tequila, wasn't it? Or, or vodka Zambuca's. shots. Or I think it was Zambuca. Zambuca shots. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. He, he is crucial to them. I think at the same time, I do think Dean Smith was kind of right what he said yesterday and that this is this Villa team was sort of muddled not muddled together but pulled together very quickly last year for a lot of money in a short amount of, of space of time then they had to kind of mould and gel throughout a season where they were suffering injuries and they were also one of the weaker teams in the division and then morale goes so you're kind of trying to build a unity within all of that so, and I think that is slightly coming together now. They looked a hell of a lot better after the restart. Um, and a lot of that was because of Grealish, but it was elsewhere as well. So I think they just would need to reinvest the money well. And what about the job that Dean Smith has done in his first season managing in the Premier League, Gregor, when you also consider the amount of money that, that Villa spent? Has he done a good job? It's a strange one to gauge, actually, because... You know, they did spend a lot of money and I don't think it was spent all that well on the whole. I'm not sure you can just lay that at the at the feet of Dean Smith. No. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were on an awful run. I think they lost some like eight of eight of the ten games before these last four and they won two of the last four to stay in the league. And the big part of that was, as Tom said, after the after the restart, they just looked, they looked much more solid defensively. You know, they conceded a couple of goals in the last... In the last uh, uh, four games, which was you know after the shipping four against Leicester and 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 even more against Man City a, a couple of times um, was a big turnaround. So I think that you know this, yes Grealish is the talisman and he's the man who who got the vital goals when they did win points. But it was also it's also work on the training ground. It seems like um, that has really kind of shored things up at the back and given them a chance to survive, which is which is what they've done. But Dean Smith. Yeah, I think you know. I think he now has a chance to to make to make more additions to to try and mould his squad a little better. And and as you say, there was a lot of turn. You know, there's a lot of kind of turnaround in numbers last summer. So he's got a little bit of time to to try and uh, to try and work on on a on a plan for keeping them in the league next season. Now. Mm. Well, with Villa surviving, it sealed the fate of Bournemouth and Watford, who will be joining Norwich in the Championship next season. After five years in the Premier League, the Cherries will be playing in the second tier of English football. After the game, Eddie Howe looked emotional. So, could we have seen Eddie Howe in the dugout for Bournemouth for the last time, Tom? Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, I think quite possibly. I mean, he he's he's always been a very measured manager. And as you say, he was very emotional yesterday but even even in that he was pretty measured in saying um that you know his future is something for for later in the summer i i guess he wasn't going to make any knee-jerk decisions after seeing bournemouth go down because you know this isn't a case of um this isn't a case this isn't similar to the other clubs this isn't daniel farker's um, Norwich going down or or even Hayden Mullins as an interim manager or any of the managers who've been there before him because Howard taken them, you know, everyone knows the story it's, it's the famous fairy tale story now coming up through the divisions and, and of course it's the long affiliation that he's had um, with the club. I think this summer it will be a case of personal ambition up against his, his kind of 
part in a way because of that connection. I don't think I don't think he'd want to leave Bournemouth at all. Um, he, we've seen that before. He had opportunities in the past to leave, and I don't think there's any manager in the Premier League now who has a connection to his club more than how does with Bournemouth. But I worry, I worry for Bournemouth if he did go because he's probably also one of the only managers in the Premier League who who still has that kind of traditional position of a manager where he has his fingers in absolutely everything going on at that club. So where, Gregor, would you say Eddie Howe's stock is right now? Uh, as Tom just alluded to, he was a name that not so long ago was was linked with some high-profile jobs, Arsenal, Everton, England. But where is he at right now? Well, he's not there. I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I don't, th- one thing I, I don't think, as Tom said, I don't think it, like personal ambition will come into his decision, actually. I think it'll be about whether he feels Bournemouth, he's going to be in a position to help Bournemouth return to the Premier League. Um, and that's going to be dependent on what players they can keep a hold of, whether they have investment, you know, money is tight there. I think, um, you know, the Bournemouth has spent a lot of money to stay in the Premier League and when they drop out and the and the TV money dries up, then they're, they're back to having, you know, between ten and 15,000 fans through the gate every week and it's a small club. So, you know, there's going to be some tough decisions to be made there. So I think it won't it won't be about personal ambition. It'll be about whether he thinks, A, whether he feels he can leave on these terms after such a journey, whether he thinks, whether he can live with himself almost uh, to leave on a kind of a failure, a failure of a note like this. Uh, and also whether he thinks that Bournemouth will be in a position to, to challenge to return to the Premier League next season. Tom, they'd made a, a good start to the season in, in which I think they'd only lost three of their, their first 11 games, but their form sort of seemed to nosedive after that. There were obviously some key injuries to players and then obviously with the restart, we know what happened with Ryan Fraser, who's been such an influential player for them, in particular when you think back to last season. I think he was second on the list for most assists in the Premier League, but very different this time around, as we know what happened with Ryan Fraser not wanting to to play on and, and finish things off for Bournemouth. Can you see where he could possibly end up, Eddie Howe, now? Should he part company with Bournemouth? Yeah, I mean, I I, I actually, I thought that was a really good point Gregor made about um, the fact it would be it would be such a sour note to leave on, his, his legacy at the club ends in with a relegation the only thing though I, I think is that um, I think his name would still be in amongst the the, the big clubs um, maybe not the, the top six but I still think he'd be just just outside that I mean if you saw Brendan Rodgers if, if you saw a, that kind of sorry cliched managerial merry-go-round going on this this summer or, or, or any time soon would like Brendan Rodgers leaving Leicester or say a Nuno leaving Wolves. I do think his name would be in there because of what he's done at Bournemouth. I think because of the run, especially through the end of, of um, just before lockdown and then the beginning of the restart, it was just a horrible run. I mean, I think it was seven defeats in, in eight um, that really killed them a little bit. Suddenly, there's there's a few sort of knee jerk uh, assessments of of him, but and and his kind of performance and whether it all comes to the end of the road. But like you you said, Matt, there's there's been kind of a horrible storm there of inju- the injury to David Brooks. I mean, he was he was such a key player, and to lose him for practically the whole season, the Ryan. Ryan Bennett situation with his contract 
and then you know injuries with with Nathan Aki as well. He was missing for a while as well. And uh, I, do, I do think though, at the same time, the job he did with that club is, is now now it's over. The job he did with that club will be considered um, a, a, a kind of almost a miracle for, for getting there, and and I think that will be taken into account. Well, Watford arrived in the Premier League at the same time as Bournemouth and they'll be leaving at the same time. After five years, managerless Watford will be playing championship football as well. They fought hard to turn things around against Arsenal after going 3-0 down, but they could only drag it back to 3-2. Two defeats in two for Hayden Mullins in caretaker charge of the club. Gregor, did you really think he could take on the role full-time next season or do you expect the Pozzo family to be looking elsewhere? I'd be hugely surprised if he if he was a manager next season, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, they're, they're, they, 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 they cast their net far and wide, uh, Pozzo's, when they're, when they're recruiting managers. And uh, I don't think, I don't think somebody who's kind of unproven like Aidan Mullins is, is the kind of person that they're really going to be going for. Um, I just think, again, it's worth saying how, how ludicrous it, it was to sack Nigel Pearson. It just, just remarkable the idea that it feels like a kind of emotional, personal decision got in the way of the best interests of Watford Football Club. You know, it sounds like they had a disagreement, and you know, we said last week that Nigel Pearson is not a shrinking violet. He probably said said his piece, and you know, but this is a it's an emotional industry, and to sack him with two games to go and. The idea that Hayden Mullins would have a better opportunity, would get more from the players, or there'd be a better opportunity of Watford surviving with Hayden Mullins in the dugout than Nigel Pearson was frankly ludicrous. So I think Watford actually are getting what they deserve here. When a club is continuously changing managers, as Watford seem to do, Tom, is that an excuse for this relegation? Or actually, do the players need to put their hands up and say they're at fault for some of this as well? I think it's a bit of both in a way Gregor very uh, nicely summed up the situation at, at, at Watford I mean they've been there the Podsos have been there since 2012 and again it was their their, their, their approach is brutal um, the amount of managers I think they went through 10 in the first 6 years um, the, the approach is absolutely brutal um, and it's an unforgiving environment to work in. Um, and I think this season that, that, that approach ran out a little bit. I mean, you had Javi Grazia last summer. He, he'd taken them to an FA Cup final. He was, he was the first Watford manager, first of all, to survive a summer and second of all, to get a contract extension. And then five games into the season, he's gone. And I think the Pozzo's next move more than sacking Pearson, the Pozzo's next move was the big mistake, and that was going back to Kike, Kike Sanchez mm. Flores. Not not because he's not uh, not because he's incapable or a bad manager. I think the opposite of both things. I think he's he's a very good manager, and he showed that in 2015 when he was at the Carriage Road for the first time. I think the problem was what that represented, and that was a backward step, and it was shown in the fact they missed the bounce that they obviously hoped for. And by the time Pearson did come in, it, was, it wasn't necessarily too late. But where the amount of points that he collected on average for over a whole season would leave a team, a club, mid-table. And 
they're not. So I think if they if they brought him in earlier, with hindsight, obviously wonderful thing, but with hindsight, if they brought if they brought in Pearson earlier and not gone backwards, I think they would still be a Premier League club. The managerial situation ha- has been a revolving door at, at Watford for a very long time, as you've just pointed out, Tom, when the Pozzo family took over. Gregor, what is it like for to be at a club when you when you're changing managers, and also? I suppose in some ways you, you want to say the Watford players, a vast majority of them, would have been used to it. So in a way you <laughs> felt like they were perfectly suited to a change in, in managerial positions there. But how much of an effect does it really have on you when you keep having a new boss at the helm in a short space of time? Thankfully, I never had four in, in one season, so I can't, I can't really... Really? Uh, I can't believe that. I can't emphasize that. But I think, um, I think it just it must, have been, must become wearying. I think actually... When you know the whole bringing back Kiki was one thing. At least they knew him. A lot of them knew him. Um, it didn't work out. But the 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 noises around around Pearson from the about Pearson from the players like was was all hugely positive. I think just the fact that he was he was honest. Uh, he said said it how how it is. Um, you know, there's no grey areas with him, and. It was almost, it was very it was refreshing. I think I think actually Ben Foster used that word. He said it's been refreshing him coming in, and they and they wanted him to stay. So I think I think you know that was a that was a good move, and it was one that a lot of people questioned. A lot of people looked at that and thought, you know, mm-hmm. Nigel Pearson, really? That's you know that was a surprise, but it was it was a good move, and the way that they kind of shot themselves in the foot after that uh, was was just remarkable. So. I think I think I think for the players, you know, the, the, you asked as well. Uh, the players do take a good portion of, this, of the blame here because four managers have never been able to to rouse a, a consistent level of performance from them in the same way that they have in previous seasons, uh, and that is down to the players who go into the pitch. But it's hugely disruptive when you've mm. you know when a, a, every every few months a, a new manager's in the door with these with different ideas and and a different approach. Uh, I think it must be hugely tiresome for for the players, and I'm not surprised to hear someone like Troy Deeney saying that um, he well, he was basically saying, "Come and get me," wasn't he? Yeah, he certainly was doing that. We'll talk about Troy Deeney in just a moment, but just lastly on the managerial situation, Tom, we've had Gracia, we've had Flores, we've had Pearson, and then we've had Mullins for the last two games. If there's a manager looking on at the situation at Watford. Why would they want to take this when they know that their job isn't necessarily secure? Um, I think I, I still think many managers would take it because of the fact we all do know the, the kind of context. I, I don't. I don't think any less of Kike Sanchez Flores for getting sacked. Um, I don't think any less of Nigel Pearson for getting sacked. I think they would both be in contention for for jobs in England now. I think Nigel, Nigel Pearson comes out of this very strongly. And, and like Gregor said, it was a it was a shrewd, surprising move to bring him in in the first place. I remember um, going to Pearson's opening press conference and he was he admitted the kind of surprise of, of, of getting the job and being back in the Premier League because of his, his uh, controversial history within it. Um, now, I think a lot of Premier League uh, clubs will, will look at him especially when we get to sort of December time and those first seconds come and you're looking for a manager to come in 
uh, and Labour Club, I think Pearson will be among it. But, but sorry, I'm segueing a little bit. With, with Watford, I think it's still a big club. It's got a brilliant fan base. At the moment, it has a great squad still. And I think you just need to go into it with your eyes <laughs> wide, wide open, knowing that you may not be there that long, but it's still a brilliant job. You mentioned the good squad there. And, and Gregor, you obviously suggested that uh, Troy Deeney's future may now lie away from Watford. He was pretty emotional uh, after the game, admitting that he's not entirely sure where his future lies. Would there be a number of Premier League clubs interested in, in his final few years? Look, Troy, Troy Deeney's a handful for any defender, any Premier League defence. Uh, I think, I mean, it's, I think, I think I'd be surprised if, if he's not still playing the Premier League next season, you know he's a big character too. It would take the right the right manager to to want to want to take him on board. But um, you know someone like uh, Crystal Palace, uh, Newcastle even, yeah, Burnley. He'd fit in very well at Burnley. Uh, you know he's, I think he's he's definitely he's definitely still cut out for the Premier League, even though he's thirty two. And I think he let the an interviewer know that after. After the game as well, yeah, very weekend. politely. <laughs> yeah, not very politely. Um, no, yeah, I mean, again, it's just about. I think the one thing to say is, if he, I think he, if he wants out, he'll probably get his way. So, um, I think uh, the likelihood is we'll probably still see Troy Dean in the Premier League next season. So it is Norwich, Bournemouth, and Watford who will all be playing in the Championship next season. Uh, who's the best equipped? Do you think, Tom, to bounce straight back? It's a hard one to answer in terms of you just don't know what's going to happen this season, uh, this summer, sorry. Um, but right this second, the way the way the teams all went down, I'd say Bournemouth for the reason that I think they still have a very good squad and I think they still have a very good manager. I'm not sure he'll be there next year, like we've just said. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about how that club could sort of be stripped apart with their best players. And it's the same thing with Watford. I think you'll get Premier League clubs dipping into their their kind of best players. So maybe the answer might end up being Norwich because they they came up with a similar squad to the one they had. They they accepted that what what they were doing, that they weren't investing hugely. And they, they, they go down with, with the similar squad, same manager, I don't think the going down was as hugely disheartening as it will have been uh, to Bournemouth and and also Watford. Mm. It certainly felt like Norwich were preparing for, for relegation. Uh, Gregor, what about you? Who do you think could return and make or make immediate return to to the Premier League? I think it's it's almost ironic, but it probably is Norwich because mm-hmm. they've probably got the best chance of keeping the keeping their squad together. There's a few players, Max Aaron's, possibly Campwell. Um, who I'm sure will have some interest, but and then there's all, but also the fact that they lost ten games in a row just before they were to go down. So, you know, they they'll have a task on their hands, sort of transforming the atmosphere in the place there. Um, but they're a well-run football club, and I think you know this was their this was their whole idea. They want to be in the top twenty-six teams in the country, not not just kind of push the boat out or or you know overspend to maintain their status in the in the Premier League every year. If they go down, they want to be someone who's challenging to come back straight away. Bournemouth, I think, will be will be picked apart like a carcass. I think Nathan Ake will go, David Brooks will go, Callum Wilson will go, Josh King will possibly go. So I think Bournemouth could be in serious trouble with or without Eddie Howe, really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And Watford, you know, for all the chopping and changing they've done, they do. They have a lot of experience. The Potsdams have owned football clubs for I think at least two decades um, in in as many as three countries. So um, I think Watford probably will be up there next season. Are you just mentioning Norwich, Gregor, because you so badly predicted they'd stay up? So you're hoping <laughs> that they'll come good. <laughs> Well, if, if we went all the way back to a year ago to my predictions, <laughs> I think maybe Norwich were going down. But um, yeah, no, I've been pretty bad on them recently. Haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> Not the best, but anyhow, it's been a strange season. Shall we just say that? It's been a strange season and the longest, of course, a Premier League campaign has ever lasted due to a global pandemic. Liverpool were made to wait, but after already waiting 30 years, a few more months was nothing really. Klopp's side finished on 99 points, breaking bundles of records and setting an even higher standard in the Premier League. Manchester City, Manchester United and Chelsea completed the top four and there's every chance they'll all be pushing Liverpool next season, perhaps. Unfortunately, at the bottom, the Premier League says goodbye, as we've heard, to Norwich, Bournemouth and Watford. They'll all be looking to bounce straight back. But after what we saw in the Championship on the final day, well, they're in for some ride, that's for sure. So after almost one whole year of Premier League moments, it's probably time for both Gregor and Tom, for you to pick your favourite moments of the season. So, Tom, have you got one for us? Am I only allowed one, am I? Oh, no. Well, no, um, no. You can start well, with your top one and then let's see where we go. Don't use my um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just go for two. So, the, the, uh, the, the goal line technology problem at Villa Park for the opening game of the restart just stood out to me as you know you've had three months out you've had all this kind of desperation everyone talking about coming back and actually having a debate about VAR again and then suddenly this happens in the first game back it it just seemed too ludicrous to be true um but my 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 top moment of the season has to be the Pochettino sacking um at Spurs. Oh. and the re- Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> no, so go on, sorry. And the reason, but the reason for that, the reason is not. It's not necessarily actually kind of the, the Pochettino being sacked because I think we, you know, we felt it coming for quite a while, and I think there was this. Um, I don't think Pochettino wanted to be any there anymore. Um, but it was the decision that came after that. This, this, this marriage of Daniel Levy and Jose Mourinho and this, this overnight shift at Tottenham Hotspur um, between a club that was, you know, play, was playing beautiful football under Pochettino and um, elevating young players and making them better to to Mourinho, who was pretty much the, the antithesis of that. And it, it was just a huge shift in focus um, as a football club that I don't think we've seen in, in a long, long time. And I don't think we'll see for a while. I mean, by the way you, you spoke, Gregor, I'm assuming that maybe the Pochettino sacking is one of your moments. But are you still surprised, actually, both of you, that Maurizio Pochettino is still not in a job? A little bit. I think uh, James Gearbrand actually wrote a really cracking piece on Saturday about, he was, he was almost arguing that he should go back to Espanyol, who've, just, who've been relegated to the second tier in, in Spain, because he was talking about Pochettino, you know, he, he needs something more than just, you know, if Paris Saint-Germain threw millions and millions and millions of pounds at him and said, come and be our manager. I think he, he's someone who's quite an emotional guy who needs to feel an attachment and a love and a kind of 
a yearning to be there. You know, he's and so so I think I think that probably is part part of it. Part of it also was that you know there was the whole kind of courting of of Real Madrid, and now Zinedine Zidane has won the league there, so that's not going to happen. Um, you know, a lot of the big jobs that looked like they were going to become available suddenly aren't. Um, so it it could be something that's a little bit more imaginative for him now. Uh, obviously, Juventus have been linked as well, but they've just won the league under Sarri. So, yeah, I mean, I, I am surprised, but at the same time, I think, as James argued, if anyone's not read that, I would urge them to, you know, he's someone who's an emotional guy and, and you know, he's a disciple of Bielsa and he's kind of, he he, he needs to feel that the job is, is something that he could throw his heart and soul into. So that's possibly by, why he's waiting. But that was one of, that kind of was one moment for me that, leapt out it was just the sheer shock I just remember sitting at home and and seeing on Sky Sports News like within the space of about 45 minutes there was like Sky sources say that Mourinho is being linked and then like half an hour later Mourinho is in talks and then it was like 20 minutes later Mourinho to be announced in the morning it was like what (laughs) I just could not believe it so yeah that is a remarkable moment um on the pitch, I think Liverpool, Man City, the three-one game uh, back in November. When Liv- I think Liverpool were six points clear at the time. At that kind of, that had everything. That was probably the game of the season for me, and also memorable for Pep Guardiola's absolute kind of uh, mind loss on the touchline when he was throwing two fingers up, going twice to the <laughs> to the fourth <laughs> official. Uh, when I think it was, was it two handballs in the build up to the goal, something like that. Um, <laughs> So that was probably on the pitch. That was, although I have to say, Jacka as well. Jacka's, Jacka's kind of meltdown and and fallout with the Arsenal fans. That kind of, that really represented how much turmoil and and how toxic uh, the Emirates was at that time. And I, I don't say that because I'm a kind of sadist and I enjoyed watching him being abused. It was really horrible to watch, but it's actually remarkable to see the kind of turnaround he's enacted there. Uh, you know, since Arteta's come, he's become quite an important player for them so you'd have thought there was no chance he was ever going to play for Arsenal again and suddenly he's he's performing well for them so those two things um, and I don't know how we can't mention as well the weekend that it all stopped you know when we found out that if, if Mikel Arteta hadn't tested positive for, for Covid then there would have been another round of fixtures and just that just thinking back to that weekend and how kind of frightful it was and how the world came kind of to a standstill. The football world came, you know, there was bigger things at play, but that was a really, that was a kind of a moment that you'll always remember uh, in a a season that has been unique. Certainly has been that. And I think we all can agree that we don't want to obviously experience another season like this as well. That is it for now. Thank you to Tom and to Gregor as well. We're going to be back with you on Thursday. But in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for award-winning journalism on every platform. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. Do stay safe. listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. 
There's more to iPhone.